Well, good morning, Christ Chapel. Wonderful to worship with you. Hello to all of you streaming with us online. Hello to the West Campus Hive and South Campus and certainly uh, Converge. So glad that you are joining us uh, for worship. It's a wonderful day to worship the Lord. Uh, sometimes when we gather for worship, you hear from our favorite uh, Irish pastor, uh, Dr. Jonathan Murphy. Uh, unfortunately, you get me today, sorry. Uh, but uh, some of you don't know the connection that I have with Jonathan. Jonathan and I have been friends for t- almost two decades uh, now. He's been a wonderful friend uh, to me, and uh, we got to know each other way back when in seminary. And actually, his one of his younger brothers, uh, where he and I took his brother Paul. He and I took every class together of our 120 hour uh, uh, master's degree. So we got to be really good friends, so much so that I actually did my pastoral internship under their dad, Dennis Murphy, over in Northern Ireland uh, way back when. So I got to live with his family and things. So I've been uh, tremendously impacted uh, by the Murphy clan, as we call them, and uh, love them to death. And one of the things that uh, they've taught me, they've taught me so many things, but they taught me a phrase that their parents had taught them. And it was a phrase that says, good fences make good neighbors. Good fences make good neighbors. Now, um, I think the world of Dennis and Marie Murphy, I think they're geniuses, but they did not invent that phrase. Um, That phrase actually comes from a poem written in 1914 by Robert Frost called Mending Walls. And in that poem, what he's talking about is the, are these two neighbors are, and he's thinking about uh, how he needs a good fence so that it provides these physical boundaries so that they know what is mine is mine and what is yours is yours. And we, we know that great physical boundaries that, that are respected when we have those physical boundaries that provides a great sense of, of safety a sense of security, a sense, a sense of self, that you, you have some, some place that you can call your own, a place that you can uh, retreat back into. And it's, we get into problems in those relationships when those physical boundaries aren't respected, when people cross those lines or they infringe on those uh, property lines or onto your space. That, that makes relationships really hard. It provides some friction in those relationships. That's why Robert Frost and Dennis and Marie Murphy say, good fences make good neighbors. Well, what is true in the physical world is also true in the emotional, relational, and spiritual world. Good fences, good boundaries make good relationships. When we understand what the boundaries are in our relationships and we understand this is my space and that's your space, I'm gonna stay over here and you're gonna stay over there, that provides a great sense of safety and security and a great sense of self. But oftentimes in our world, our world doesn't understand what those good boundaries are. They, they want to blur those boundaries and blur those lines whether they think that's because these boundaries are confining or uh, oppressive or just not meant for them. They begin to, to push the envelope. They begin to cross those lines and it ends up breaking up relationships. You see, we need to understand that even in our relationships and certainly in the way that we allow God to direct our relationships, that good fences 
make good neighbors. And so what we're going to do is we're going to draw those boundary lines today so those lines are not blurred and we have a good relationship with our neighbors and with the Lord. And so if you will, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 32 is where we're going to be today. This was the passage, parents, that I asked you to read in the pastor's desk before you came uh, because uh, it's up to your discretion whether you want your children to uh, sit through this. But uh, if you don't want them to hear about this, now would be a great time to relocate them. Uh, We're going to continue our series upside down. And remember, this is uh, Jesus's inauguration uh, of his kingship, telling his citizens how we are supposed to live under his rule and authority uh, in our lives. And he's telling us that his kingdom has different boundaries than the world. The world has a a certain way to, to look at, sorry, I'm trying to swallow here, a certain way to think about the way that we relate to one another. They have a certain way that they handle anger as we talked about last week. And he's telling the, the kingdom citizens that he has sitting in front of him on this hill, but was called the Sermon on the Mount, that his kingdom is different. And the way that they are going to affect change in the world, to be salt and light, is to respect those boundaries and not blur those lines. And so we're going to cover one of the uh, commandments that was given in the Ten Commandments. This was uh, the Seventh Commandment specifically that he's going to reinterpret for the Pharisees, which is, thou shall not commit adultery. Now remember, one of the reasons why Jesus is reaching back into the Old Testament is because he's trying to reinterpret the law correctly. The Pharisees of that day, they were blurring the lines. They were relaxing the commandments, and we just talked about that two weeks, two weeks prior. And he says, anyone who relaxes this standard, it's not going to be good for you, basically paraphrasing. And they were relaxing those standards. They were looking for loopholes. They were looking for ways that made themselves look very righteous, but they weren't abiding by the spirit of the law which God had intended And so we're going to look at a particular subject today in these verses, which is human sexuality. Uh, Humans are sexual beings. That's a part of who we are, and that's a part of the relationships that we have. And I want to put some bounds on those relationships because the bounds that Jesus puts on sexuality are meant for our good. Boundaries can be blessings providing safety, security, protection, a sense of self, a sense of predictability, a place where we can be vulnerable, a place where we can be accepted. And so what I want to do is I want to draw those boundary lines as Jesus does here. And then I want to uh, talk about what is out of bounds and then how we stay in bounds. And all of this is going to drive toward sexual integrity. And here's what I mean. I want to define that for you, that term sexual integrity. What I mean by sexual integrity is when our beliefs and behaviors match with God's design and desire. He he has a, a design and desire and we need to match our beliefs and behavior to those things specifically in the realm of sexuality. And so I think this sermon is going to apply for, for all of us. It doesn't matter if you're single, married, 
divorced, remarried, widowed, it doesn't matter. This is going to apply to you. So let's go in and begin to uh, dissect this passage because I want to break it down to the different aspects that God is calling us to this sexual integrity. And the first is with our sexual activity. Sexual activity is confined to the biblical definition of marriage. Sexual activity is confined to the biblical definition of marriage. This is the inbounds part, is point one. I wanna draw those boundaries for us, and remember, boundaries are blessings. Boundaries are blessings. We've gotta get that into our heads. Okay, look at verse 27. Jesus begins this passage by saying, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And so the, the way that Jesus begins this entire passage is by quoting that seventh commandment of the 10 commandments, but he basically starts off in the negative, meaning you've heard it said you should not go out of bounds when it comes to marriage. And so that's why I feel like we need to draw the bounds uh, quickly. So I've got three things on there for you um, because Jesus is saying he's pro-marriage. You see, first, God designed sex to be experienced inside the bounds of marriage. Very simple, very simple. God designed sex to be experienced inside the bounds of marriage. As I just said, God is pro-marriage. He created that in the beginning with Adam and Eve, and that is his biblical definition, and that is our biblical definition, the definition we stand on of marriage. One man, one woman, for life. That's, that's the biblical definition. That was God's desire, God's design, God's intent. And the reason why that is his intent is because he has purposes. He has desires that come out of his design. If he designed it that way, the reason why is because he desires that uh, in marriage that we would procreate. That's a part of marriage. He also desires that we would have companionship that comes in the, the form of marriage. It comes in that marriage relationship. And then we learn from Ephesians chapter five that another reason why you institute marriage is because that's supposed to be an example to the world of how Christ loves the church and the church loves Christ. That's why he sets up this institution of marriage. And that's why he puts sex, this very vulnerable, intimate thing inside these bounds and context. It's because biblical marriage is based on a covenantal, not contractual relationship. Marriage is supposed to be based on a covenantal, not contractual relationship. And here's what I mean. I just told you that Ephesians 5 talks about the way that marriage represents Christ and his relationship to the church and the church to Christ. And the way that we are related to Christ is through his promise. That's what covenant means. It's a promise. And we see that all throughout the Old Testament especially where God makes a promise to us. And here's why that's important is because our relationship with God is not based on performance. It's based on his promise to us. And that's a huge distinction between a covenantal relationship and a contractual relationship. A covenantal relationship is based on a promise. 
It's not based on performance. See, when we base our relationships on performance, we can get out of it when that other person isn't performing the way that we had agreed to or the way that we want them to. Uh, We have contracts all the time. Uh, Last weekend, I was on the phone with AT&T for one hour because I am under contract. And I don't wanna be under contract. I wanna get out. They're not performing the way that I want them to, and so I want to get out. I don't have a covenantal relationship with AT&T, okay? But that's that's the difference. You see, a covenantal relationship, that is one based on a promise that I told you, it's about a commitment. You are committing to someone, you've promised them. That's why whenever I perform weddings, when we're doing our vow, when the the bride and groom are doing their vows, I say, before God and these witnesses, I do promise. That that is the line that I use in all of those uh, wedding ceremonies because that's what marriage is based, that's what God's idea of marriage is based on, this promise. And here's why that's important. Because if we go and we look at marriage in the way of a contract, and think about the pressure that that puts on a spouse, that they are constantly supposed to perform. That's a huge amount of pressure, thinking that there, were all, that there could always be an out, that if they don't perform well, then somebody could pull a ripcord and, and hit the eject button and they're gone. That's a, that's a lot of pressure. Man, I, I, I fail all the time. And if I, I don't know how we can live under that pressure in that relationship. That's why if a relationship is covenantal and based on a promise, there's grace, there's forgiveness, there, there's kindness, there's patience, there's all of those things that represent the character of God because our relationship and marriage represent Christ's love for the church and the church's response to Christ. That, that's... That's a huge difference. And just, by the way, quick disclaimer, this is why God's design is not for cohabitation. Because it's very easy in cohabitation to say, I pull the ripcord. You're not performing. You're not in that committed relationship. That's why he wants the promise to be made. And we are going to get through it through thick and thin, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. That's the promise That's the covenant. That's God's design for marriage. But that's not the way the Pharisees were treating marriage. You see, the Pharisees were treating it as a contract, as if they weren't pleased with their spouse's performance, behavior, attitude, words. It doesn't matter what it was. Then they could hit the the eject button and they could get out. Look at verses 31 and 32. Jesus goes on and he said, it was also said that whoever divorces his wife, just let him give her a certificate of divorce. There's the the contract. Just break the contract. Just, Just write her off. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now here's what Jesus is saying. The Pharisees, they were treating marriage as the contract. And they would say, if my wife displeases me for any reason, I can just give her a certificate of divorce, wipe my hands, and I am done. 
clean and clear. Write them off very quickly. We even have uh, instances recorded in history where Pharisees, where it was a custom where they could even divorce their wives if dinner was burned. Now you think, I just talked about the pressure of living in a contractual relationship. That's pressure. And that's how they were treating marriage. It was no, it was no different than any other contractual relationship. And Jesus says, hey, that's not the way I designed it. That doesn't represent my heart. That's not what, what I mean. And he says, that's not, he said, the only way that divorce is even, uh, is even allowed or even a concession is in the case of sexual immorality. And that word there is pornea. It's, it's the word where we get our word pornography. You've heard this a million times but it means sexual acts outside of marriage. And I think when you couple this with Jesus' teaching in Matthew 19, I think what he's talking about is continual infidelity. And he talks about when that uh, union is broken, that sexual union is broken outside the covenants of marriage, then you are free to remarry. That's what he's saying here. But he's saying that is the extreme case you're not supposed to get divorced based on these uh, burning of dinner or you didn't like how X and Y went in your day and you just write them, write them off. And put, in fact, the way that Jesus is phrasing this, he is actually valuing women way higher than society valued women of those days. Women were written off and they were therefore cast off if they didn't perform, as I said. And that's why Jesus says here, if you divorce her for anything except on the grounds of sexual immorality, if she marries an, an, anyone else, you're making her commit adultery. Why? Because it shouldn't, that uh, marriage shouldn't have been annulled in the first place. And he puts the onus there on the husband, saying you shouldn't have written her off. You're making her go into a relationship she was never meant to be in because it's supposed to be based on a covenant and not a contract. See, that remarriage was permitted only in the case of sexual immorality. These are the bounds that Jesus draws around marriage. It's because he's pro-marriage. He holds up the institution and the sanctity of marriage because he cares for you, because he wants what's best for you. And these boundaries are best. But it's not just boundaries for our physical relationships. These are boundaries for our emotional connections as well. You see, sexual purity includes the thoughts of one's heart. Jesus is gonna go on and he's gonna say, hey, this isn't just about a physical relationship that you have. This is about the thoughts and attitudes of your heart. He goes as far as to say, adultery doesn't just begin in bed, it begins in the head and the heart. That's where it begins. Look at verse 28. He says, but I say to you that, whoever one look, who, uh, that any, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This word lust means exactly what you would think it means. It means um, desiring or longing or pining for specifically something that is out of reach or forbidden. 
And he's saying anyone who looks, he says specifically here, anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. Now, what he's talking about there is that I want to have her. But just real fast, this is not only a male problem. This is a female problem. And I, and I mean it in, in the most base way uh, possible. In fact, statistics tell us today that in regard to pornography, that women are just as prone to looking at pornography as men. And, and you say, okay, Cody, I, I don't struggle with that. That's not, that's not mine. Okay, how often do you fantasize and say, if you were just like him? If you would just be kind like him, if you, if you would just be gracious like him, or if you would just be like her, it, you, you can take it any way, because that's what this lust is talking about. If you look at someone and go, I wish I had them, then that's a problem. Now, I want to put lust in its place so you understand where it goes in the thoughts and minds of humankind's heart. Because there's actually kind of a progression that happens here. And I want to explain this progression because I want to talk about later on how we can cut off this progression. So if you look at your sermon notes, you can see this. Um, where lust begins, and lust has a lot of correlations with greed, by the way. And that's why I said it has this connotation of longing for something that we is out of bounds or forbidden or we do not have. But here, if you look at it, it starts with an attraction. Finding somebody attractive. That could be physically, that could be a, a quality trait, just as I, I mentioned. But finding someone attractive. Then it moves to temptation. And sometimes that temptation is simply to think about them again. It's the temptation to go back and, and think about them a second time or to look at them a second time. That's the temptation. Now stop right here. Attraction in, in, in its uh, most platonic form, attraction and temptation is not sin. Jesus was tempted in the desert, yet he did not sin. And so the line of, man, I, I love this because couples, especially uh, dating couples and, and folks, young people ask all the time, where's the line? Okay, here's the line, okay? Here's the line. When does it become sin? It's when you fall into temptation, into lusting. And what that means is you begin to obsess, you begin to fantasize, you begin to Think about that person and you engaging with that person intimately, personally, and they're not yours. They're not in a relationship with you. That's lust. That's that middle crux there. And that's why I say that's the line. You can be tempted, but not sin. That's where you've got to stop before you fall over the line. And then that lust, as you obsess, as you fantasize, if you continue down that continuum, moves to action, some sort of action, and then to adultery eventually. 
I also want to say one thing here, that Jesus is not saying, well, if you lust, go ahead and continue the process, okay? Let's just be clear. He, you, he wants you to stop on that progression at every point. Stop, stop, stop. Every time you see a little arrow, stop. It should be a stop sign there, not an arrow. Um, my fault. Um, Gosh, I didn't see it until right now. Sheesh. So, so here's, here's why that, gosh, why did I do that? Man. Now I'm hung up on this. I apologize. Okay, here's why that's a sin, okay? Because lust, here's why lust is a sin. It's because lust implies a lack of contentment with what God has already provided. It, it, it's a lack of contentment with what God has provided. And how many times, now, now folks, let me just say, especially for those folks who are single and you desire to be married, I'm not saying it's easy. I, I, I'm not saying any of this stuff that we're talking about today is easy. Contentment is a very, very hard thing. But we come in and we, we sing worship songs. With, you know, we say, all I have needed, your hand has provided. Do we believe it? See, this is why I, I, drive back, I say we're driving toward sexual integrity, that our beliefs and our behaviors match his desire and his design. We, do we believe it? Because we believe that God is good. We believe that he's kind. We believe that he never will leave us. He'll never forsake us, that he's provided every good thing. I always go back. I've told you this verse before, but one of my favorite verses is the second half of Psalm 84, 11 that says, God, God uh, withholds no good thing from those who love him. He's withheld no good thing from you. And if you don't have it now, it's not best for you now. It, it, it doesn't mean that he doesn't love you. It doesn't mean that it, it, he won't eventually give it to you. It doesn't mean, it, if you don't have it right now, it just means it's not best right now. And what God is always for is your best. And so when we start saying, no, God, I know what's best, we begin to say that we lack the contentment in what he's already given us. And he's like, man, but I'm telling you, I've given you what's best. I've given you what's best right now and actually one of the things that this goes into is not just the seventh commandment of the ten commandments but it actually goes into the tenth remember what the tenth is it's basically don't covet your neighbor's stuff and he specifically in that passage says your neighbor's wife don't long for her which by the way what does that say not only about God but what does that say to your current spouse if those thoughts came out loud, that would kill you if your spouse thought that about you. You see, it implies a lack of contentment, not only with God, but what God has already provided. The second reason why that's a sin is lust objectifies people and taints our present circumstances. It objectifies people and taints our present circumstances. The reason why I say objectifies, it goes back to that, um, that idea of a, of a contract, but basically when you lust over someone, you are turning them into an object, a commodity, a commodity to be consumed or to be used by you. 
that can be used by you in thoughts, that can be used by you in your fantasies, that can be used by you in, in different ways. And, and I don't say, I don't, I'm not trying to objectify any person uh, because I'm devaluing them. I'm uh, calling them an object because you're calling them an object. I'm calling them an object. When, when we lust after someone, that's what you're, you're, you're saying. I want to consume only the things that I want about you and then I don't want any more. I just want to use you. I don't want to give, I don't want to give anything to you because I don't know you. It, it's, a, it's a strictly a take relationship and that's why I said it objectifies people. And obviously the, the, the pertinent illustration to this is pornography. It's consuming, not, not giving, and in the bounds of sex, that's why I talked about the, the reason why God confines it to a committed biblical definition of marriage is because relationships are not just give and uh, they can't just be take, I'm sorry. It's not just take, take, take. It's give and take. <laughs> There's two sides to this relationship. It takes two to tango. But when we lust, we make it very one-sided objectifying them, and then it taints our present circumstances. We begin to objectify people, and then we're not satisfied where we are. We go back to the lack of contentment, and we're not only discontent with what God has given us, but we will be discontent later because lust creates a thirst that's insatiable, and it craves the unattainable. That's why it's harmful and dangerous, creating a thirst that's insatiable. You cannot get enough. You go back, you go back, you go back, you go back. When you, when you open that door, it's, it's a dangerous door to open. And it creates and it craves these unattainable things. You know, a, ma- a person's imagination is a great God-given gift. It's, it's a wonderful I think it's part of the way that we are created in the image of God. But obviously, when we use the things that God gives us for non-God-glorifying things, that grieves God's heart, and it goes against his intent. And when we objectify people, we're objectifying those who were created in the image of God. And we set them up, and we look at these, and we set up these fantasies in our minds and in our hearts. And then we ask the people around us in, in our relationships, you ask your spouse to live up to that expectation. And they're never going to meet it, ever. That, that's, that's completely unfair. It's completely unrealistic. It's not real. That's why it's a fantasy, And that's why this gets so dangerous. It's going to ruin the relationships that you already have around you. Yes, with your current spouse. Maybe even with your neighbor. Heaven forbid. That's not what I want, but I'm trying to highlight the danger here. And that's why Jesus is going to go in in verses 29 and 30, and he's going to talk about how sexual integrity necessitates drastic measures for future well-being. This is so dangerous that we need to take drastic measures to not lust after our neighbor. It's that dangerous. 
You see, this, these, this lust and these sexual temptations is nothing to be flirted with. And I, I know so many times in your minds you think, Cody, this isn't hurting anybody. This isn't hurting anything. It is. It, it is. And you might not think it is today, but it will tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. And we all know this because we live in a broken and fallen world and we see the fallout from it. And we see broken families, we see broken marriages, we see all these crazy crimes that happen that are just unimaginable that I don't want you to think about. And all that is is the fruit of people who way back when said, this isn't gonna hurt anybody. And the downstream is, it's catastrophic. And that's why it takes drastic measures today for our future well-being tomorrow. Look at verses 29 and 30. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than if your whole body be thrown into hell. Now, again, another disclaimer. Um, Jesus is not encouraging self-mutilation. He's not encouraging you to pluck out your eye or cut off your right hand, okay? He's using this as hyperbole, these drastic measures, because honestly, even if you did pluck out your eye and cut off your hand, that would not make you stop lusting. When, when I was in seminary, I had uh, two cavities, and I had to, to go to the dentist, and they removed the cavities. Guess what? I still have a sweet tooth today. I still love sugar. And you go, why? They've removed the cavities, right? It works that way, easy. No, obviously not. That's the same here. Just because we make those physical changes doesn't mean that our heart issues are solved. And that's why he says it takes these drastic measures and uses these physical ideas to get across the point of how dangerous it can be and the drastic measures you need to take. And so he brings it down to these would you rather, I talked about that in the pastor's desk, this would you rather game. Would you rather have your eye today and go to hell tomorrow? Again, he's using hyperbole. This does not mean if you have lusted that you're going to hell. He's saying that it takes drastic measures. I think he uses the eye because that's the gateway to the heart. What, what you see, and this goes back to the sin, that the pride of life, the, the lust of the flesh, the pride of you know, the eyes, things that we lust after we look at, we think, ah, oh, and that provides a spark to the imagination. I think that's why he goes to eye. Why does he go to hand? Certainly the hand is a, a, a metaphor here for action, but also in many cultures then, and even some cultures today, uh, if you are caught stealing, your right hand is cut off. And I think that's one of the things that he, that's one of the reasons why I use that here is because lusting is theft. You're stealing from somebody else, something that is not yours. That's why he uses that idea. So it's action, but I think there's intent behind here. You see, it's better to make drastic changes today 
for your future well-being tomorrow. And so all of this goes back to what do we need to do today? So what I'm calling all of us to do today is to recommit or commit for the first time to sexual integrity. And the reason why I put that re there is because, folks, this is a daily commitment. And if you made that commitment yesterday, praise God. High five, pat on the back, chest bump, make it again today. And tomorrow, and tomorrow, and tomorrow, because we're that prone to it. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Seal it every day. Every day, Lord, here's my heart. Every moment, every hour, I need you. I've got to to give it back to you. So how do we recommit every day or commit in the first place? I think there's a great passage that, uh, I know this is not the memory verse for this week that you'll get uh, tomorrow morning at eight, but this may be one that you need to add because it's it's fantastic when we talk about these kind of issues. James chapter four, verses seven and eight. James says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So here's what that recommitment looks like. First, submit to God's ways which leads to God's best. God's ways are the best ways. The question is, do you believe it? And let me, let me go ahead and tell you this. The faith steps that God will call you to in your life, you will not always feel like taking. God never said our faith and feelings will always match. You may have feelings of, oh, I don't want to do that. And God's going, this is my best though. I need you to believe it and behave like it because it matches my design and desire for you. And that's what's going to be best for you, for those around you, for your future generations, et cetera, et cetera. You've got to, in order to submit to his ways, which are the best, you have to believe that his ways are the best ways. You might not feel like it, but we can believe it. And you, you match up those small steps one day at a time. Small step, small step, small step toward God's best for you. So submit to God. You know, a great illustration I always think of when I think of God's way is the best way and how sometimes our feelings don't match. Go back to Luke chapter 15 in the prodigal son. When I know what's best, God, and we run away and we go search out our best in the best way that we can and we find out, I think it was better at home with the father. And guess what? He welcomes us. He welcomes us back every day, every single day, because he wants you at home with him, because he wants to give you his best. And his best is with him. It's walking with him day in and day out. We, would you please believe it? Believe it. And let's match the belief with our behavior. Second, resist the devil by removing temptations. Resist the devil by removing temptations. Again, you, it's gonna be hard. You're gonna not feel like it. You're gonna feel like you don't have the strength to resist the devil. But you can remove those temptations because here's what I find. 
Temptations are oftentimes linked with triggers. That means that you get to some place, you get around this group of friends, it's this particular time of night, it's this particular scenario, it's when you're on a business trip and you're in a hotel, it's when you're, all of those are triggers that end up adding up and eventually become, honestly, addictions. And if we remove some of those triggers that will help us resist the devil. I love Martin Luther had a quote, uh, the reformer. He said, you can't stop birds from flying around your head, but you can stop building them nests in your hair. And I love that. We can't control all the things out here, but we're not gonna build nests right here. We gotta remove those temptations and then finally draw near to God to find his strength. Draw near to God to find his strength. When God shows up, we find grace, we find forgiveness, we find strength, we find victory, we find power, we find all of those things. And James 4, 8 says that when we draw near to him, he draws near to us. And there are so many examples throughout scripture where when Jesus shows up, the demons flee. They bow, they submit, they run. So the safest place, the best place for you to be is with him. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your kindness. I thank you that, Lord, you want us to have good relationships with you, but also with one another. And that, Lord, you cover every area of our lives, including sexuality. And you want that to be uh, kept in the bounds that is safest, safest for us, safest for those around us. Lord, uh, would we glorify you by the things that we think, by the way that we live, by the way that we treat one another? May we be content with you, and Lord, may we find your strength as we draw near to you. Please, Lord Jesus, draw near to us, and we ask it in his name. Amen.